Welcome to Photo Geek Weekly, recorded on, uh, what is this, it's January 9th of 20, uh, 2020, because this is two days after the previous recording of the last episode, episode 92, we're now episode 93, and I'm stuttering because I never record two episodes of Photo Geek Weekly too close together. I'm, I'm, I'm away next week, so I wanted to cover some more of the CES news coverage. Uh, there's more than enough to cover on this podcast with a fellow photo geek, uh, as we do in every episode of this podcast. This week, I have with me Jordan Drake. Jordan, Hi, Don. how are you doing? I'm doing great. Lots to talk about today. Yeah, I mean, 2020, especially with CES, always gets the ball rolling quite quickly right after the holidays. Yep. So there's not a, a lengthy lull, and it hit us pretty good in some ways, a bit I don't know, mysterious and others. One thing, it's not in the the show uh, rundown that we uh, uh, that we've got four good stories lined up. But I noticed something when I was going through and preparing for this podcast. Something that was absent at CES this year that was I don't want to say a focal point, but a point of curiosity last year: the Sharp 8K yeah. uh, Micro Four Thirds camera, and it's just finished. <laughs> I at the time I said it was impossible because nobody's making a sensor that right. would make it possible and n- nobody is still making that sensor. So uh, maybe Sharp was hedging their bets and thinking that well it's going to come within the next year, it's got to be around the corner and it's still not materializing. Yeah, well a friend of mine uh Dave going by Dave Mays now uh shot with it, so they had something in there. Um you know, he had footage from it. So I don't I don't know what's going on with that. It's a very mysterious weird, interesting camera. And I was hoping to get my hands on it. Yeah. I mean, I'd like to see the Micro Four Thirds system uh, get beyond 4K. I mean, it doesn't have to be 8K. It can be 6K for all that matters. I mean, that's where the industry is trending right now right. Uh, in terms of all of the, the heavy hitting cameras that we are kind of drooling after outside of the the really high end worth more than my car kind of cameras. Right. Um, so, and to, to get into that, we are going to talk about the, uh, the, the 1DX Mark III, uh, but because that was kind of our showrunner uh, or our show head, uh, headliner uh, last week, I put that as story number two, and I know you've got a lot of opinions about that. Yeah. I'm going to start with a story that you have absolutely no opinions on. Perfect. Um, <laughs> uh, but it is something that uh, it's somewhat tangentially related to photography. Um, AMD has announced a 64-core CPU for... I don't want to say consumer products because this is definitely not priced in something that you would get in a laptop or even a, uh, a desktop that you would find in any big box retailer. But uh, 64 cores and 48 threads are now going to be available on consumer class motherboards, aside from being in the server space. And this is something that we've talked about in the past when they've come out with these really high core count uh, processors, because there's so much software out there on the market right now right. that doesn't utilize anything but a single core. Yeah, most of what photographers use. (laughs) Well, yeah, um, there are some notable exceptions uh, on one photo raw with a lot of their processes, especially their their on one resize software will use everything you throw at it. When I bring up focus stacking programs like uh, Helicon Focus or Zarene Stacker or any of those tools, they again use every bit of muscle your computer has. Um, But 
even Photoshop's focus stacking algorithm just uses one core and it tries to throw everything up into memory at the same time. So if you're trying to focus stack like 400 images, it just goes and cries in the corner in the fetal position. Come which back I think tomorrow. You know something about. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it doesn't even say come back tomorrow. It just, it freezes. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't give you an error. It just gives you a, you know, a comatose state. Uh, no matter how long you let it sit. I've tried to let it sit for three days when we were going away on a trip once I came back and it was just, you know, same uh, blank stare. So high core counts don't count for everything. Um, But they they have the ability, if you can have one core that has a, uh, a boost frequency that goes above and beyond. You don't need everything to get boosted up to a high level because for photographers, a lot of the uh, the heavy lifting from programs like Photoshop is going to be a single core or maybe a couple of cores, but really that one core performance is still important. And so when you can see a, a boost of uh, 4.3 gigahertz on the latest architect- uh, architecture from AMD, um, that I think makes it much more palatable to anybody that has the budget for something that can also take advantage of the ridiculous core count that is included within these CPUs. I I mentioned this also for video because, uh, well, the photographer side of things is relatively static single core. Mm -hmm. Uh, The video side of things, when you're trying to render out in uh, in Adobe Premiere uh, or even just scrubbing videos within that, it will utilize as much as you can throw at it. Predominantly when you're editing and what have you, it'll be using more of the GPU than the CPU, but the more the merrier. And it just kind of puts all of that together. Um, Sorry, you're going to say something? Oh, I was just going to say, I am very curious about this because I stepped away from uh, a premiere about two years ago. I finally let that subscription and at that, it let it go. And at that point, I was noticing it was not using. Uh, anytime I'd go hang out at another friend's who's got an editing workstation or something like that, it didn't seem to be using beyond even like four cores, if I remember correctly, but wasn't utilizing too much. I wonder if that has changed recently. I know Adobe historically kind of lagged behind, which is why a lot of people jumped on resolve or on the mac side final cut although there's no idea yeah, for that right I, I think that there's uh, the the mercury rendering engine if i'm not mistaken uh when you're encoding from premiere um which can use the gpu uh not right. the cpu and so that if you have a powerful gpu you don't need to spend the oodles of money and, and we're talking oodles here um this yeah, is four grand uh, i think four grand us ten dollars shy of that uh, in order to get in on that. But I mean, they have some uh, price points lower than that. If you want 24 cores and you still get a high boost, in fact, a higher boost at 4.5 gigahertz, it'll cost you $1,400 um, US. This is just for the processor, not any supporting uh, elements and everything else. But if you have uh, a even a single core process that requires a lot of active memory, uh, it has 256 megabytes of cache that's shared amongst everything. So one core presumably could have access to that entire cache pool so long as nobody else is using it. And so there's some interesting advantages there. But, you know, w- when I look at, <clears throat> I built my computer uh, at the same time when Mac was introducing their trash can shaped Mac Pros. Dark days. <laughs> they were uh, they were specced at, uh, you know, you fully build them out, but, 10 grand, not including a monitor or anything. 
And that included a 12-core Intel CPU. This was back in 2013, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and 64 gigabytes of RAM plus some fancy GPUs, etc. I was able to spend that same amount of money and get two of those processors to get 24 cores and 48 threads and twice the amount of RAM on a PC. And so when I'm looking at a build to, to get a nice, complete system, it'll probably cost me another $10,000. Is that worth it to do that every eight or nine years? Uh, I mean, I'm I'm going into uh, this is year uh, into year eight now. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. Yeah. So, uh, do you think like how much money would you spend on on the hardware, and would you do it in uh, like a big splash kind of way every almost decade, or little splashes every two or three years and ride the wave? Well, I mean, it's tough for me to suggest for everyone. For me, it's a big splash laptop because I do so much of my work on the road and everything like that. Uh, if you're the kind of person who has a dedicated workspace and something like that, then uh, in the past, I had, I guess it was a 2012 Mac Pro, uh, and I did the incremental upgrade over that, and it served me quite well until I realized I was never at home to actually use it. Uh <laughs> So uh, I I do kind of like, that's what I love about, you know, I wasn't a fan of the trash can. I like Apple going back to the, um, the new Mac pro design. And I'm coming at this largely from an Apple perspective, which makes this AMD announcement slightly irrelevant to me, but the core idea I think still applies, which is, yeah, I just want to have the option to drop some insane CPU in my computer down the road. And I'm fine to pay a little bit for a skeleton, you know, in the early days. Well, and yeah, you say that uh, there's no connection between Apple and AMD, but AMD graphics processors are right. uh, readily used in in every Mac device. In fact, I think I remember NVIDIA stating that they're going to stop supporting drivers for uh, Mac OS X. I don't know if that's actually happened or not. I don't keep my finger on the pulse of that too closely. But there's a strong connection, at least on one side. And uh, Microsoft dipped their toes in the water with AMD in the last uh, uh, product cycle refresh so that you could get a Surface laptop that had AMD processors in it. Hmm. Uh, if that proves to be a success for them, we might see more collaborations. And uh, they might bend some of the market away from Intel, uh, with especially with Apple. Intel has had a hard time in the last little while with all of their security issues and, uh, and the mitigations yeah. cause performance degradations and so on and so forth. And they really haven't bounced back from that comparing when amd was announcing uh this processor in uh, their ces uh, announcement they compared uh the just the cost of the cpus if you wanted to buy a pair of high-end intel uh xeon platinum like 8280s or i forget the exact number uh it would cost you like twenty thousand dollars for just the chips right and this one at four thousand dollars rendered 30 percent faster um, so for creatives on that side of things, if you are trying to render out content, uh, this could be a game changer for you to, to keep your eye on at the very least, because AMD is stealing market share left, right, and center. If I was to invest in a company right now, they, they would be one to watch. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'm just constantly hearing people saying, man, we really want to get these AMD processors over on yeah the Mac and especially the video editing side of the world. And yeah, I can see why. 
All right. Well, that, that's just I wanted to bring that across everybody's radar. They did it. They announced a, uh, a non-server class 64 core 128 thread CPU. If you are planning on buying a new computer in the next little while for editing, you don't have to go for the big boy. They've got much more affordable chips that sit into the same motherboards. And this technology is evolving so quickly. So, um, yeah, keep your eye on that. that. That is my current recommendation. If you are going to build a computer for editing anything, is uh, is those uh, Ryzen um, either the Threadripper or even just the regular ones? They're 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 changing the market. I do want to say Threadripper is an excellent name for a product. <laughs> yeah, I I concur. Yeah, it's something red would have come with. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's let's move on to uh, the story that I know that you've got a lot to opine on, uh, and it looks like you were probably playing with this over the holiday break. Yep. Um, the DP Review TV Canon One DX Mark Three for video uh, video that you'd recorded, and the link for that will be in the show notes. Pretty succinct, uh, seven minutes that you put together. Probably took you three days to produce. So I appreciate all of the time <laughs> that goes into this. I know exactly how much effort goes into the minutes uh, that are put into all of these little nuggets of knowledge videos that uh, you and Chris produce. So uh, in the video that we discussed last week, uh, which was predominantly about stills, you hinted basically that this is an amazingly capable in terms of the feature set camera, but but it's in the wrong format, right? And not even like a regular professional DSLR body. Like I I related it to the 5D Mark II. That's right. um, Which, you know, we all struggled with that form factor. But back in the day, if we wanted that aesthetic at an affordable price, it was the only option. So we all put up with it. And the only form factor worse than a big DSLR is a giant professional vertical grip, you know, for video where the vertical grip isn't even... You know, no one can see the video right now. I'm waving. The vertical here. grip is Hang entirely on. useless. Hang on. If you're shooting video. There we go. <laughs> now people can. That's the sound of the shutter on it. So they know I've got it here. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's a terrible form factor for it. And so much of what they're doing with this camera just screams to me what the future uh, of their R mount or F mount cameras are going to be. Um, I think I think that you're missing the point here. Uh, I, I think that the point, Jordan, is that this is the best camera for shooting vertical video. <laughs> I should oh there's no record button on the ones I'll find a way that's a good point <laughs> okay don't have to set up an L bracket for it uh exactly so I, I my point was that the entire format seems like uh, and it's something that Canon has revisited they, they did this with the 1DC yeah um where if you if you wanted to even get a firmware update on that camera you had to send it back to Canon because they were so closed off about it because it was probably the exact internal hardware maybe with some different heat shielding or heat mechanics to cool it off um, as the 1DX and they didn't want people just putting the wrong firmware onto those cameras now they've consolidated that together they realize that doesn't make sense to make that as a separate product Um, but does it make sense in this form if you were to do video would you spend the dollar value on this, which is about $6,500 US for this camera? Or would you get, what would be the comparable equivalent? Uh, or is there one? Or are we back into the 5D Mark II days where there's no equivalent at this price point, just suck it up? Well, that's what I talked about in the video is if you want 10-bit 422, uh, or especially if you want RAW with really amazing autofocus, then no, there's nothing quite like it. There's a C200, uh, the big cinema camera, but I've found that the uh, live view autofocus is quite a bit better on this guy. So it's tough. If that's something 
something that you need. You know, if I were out shooting, we were out filming speed skating. Uh, if I had to do that and the network said it's got to be 10 bit 422 and I want a large sensor look at it, this is the only game in town. So I'm back to those 5D Mark II days of strapping a loop onto the back of it and rigging it up. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's kind of annoying, but it is very cool to see Canon going in a direct, like embracing that video side again. Cause for so long we've been wondering just what is going on with these video specs of cropped video and low date, low bit rate, but you know, enormous files like your one DX two shot. Yeah. And the, the problem though is Canon, um, is their raw format that you can record internally on this camera, which is great. And I'm which glad is cool. they're taking, yep. I'm taking, they're taking full advantage of the CF express card format because you've got these ridiculous throughput speeds. But if you fully utilize that, you'll fill a 128 card. And how long did you say it would take? Just over five minutes, <laughs> just over five minutes. So I, the, you really have to be careful about what you shoot as if you're back to the film reel days, uh, or you'll just be eating up tons and tons of storage. And that'll slow down your, um, your, your production capabilities. Cause you're not going to keep 50 of those cards on hand. No, you're uh, constantly going to have to dump them. And the throughput's amazing on them. You can dump one of these guys incredibly quickly, but I, a lot of the time, if I'm on set and I need to, I have the budget to pay for a DIT to be transferring my footage as I go, I can probably also afford to rent a red or an Alexa or something like that. Especially for the days that you might be shooting that require that kind of equipment. But it's interesting, too, that Canon went in a uh, a proprietary raw fashion. Like, you can't Mm -hmm. look at those files yet. Can you look at them on the back of the camera? Can it render them back to you? Yeah, it'll play back, which is cool. um, Because we've had some cameras like the Blackmagics at first weren't able to play back raw. But Canon has their own proprietary uh, program, Cinema Raw Development, and it still does not. I checked again this morning, still doesn't support uh, the files from this camera. So it'll come, it'll come. Exactly. It was bothersome for me. Uh, Whenever I buy a new camera, um, and I'm shooting raw, uh, like when I bought the the 1DX Mark II, mm-hmm. I couldn't use the raw files for about a month after the camera was out, yep. uh, if memory serves. I mean, there's always that window of time, and it's not even out yet. So yeah, that, that's an extended uh, further window. But you know they've got it, because how could they release a product without being able to actually render the raw files, right? Yeah. Um, so it just... I, I, I'm speaking, uh, I'm putting words in your mouth. Yep. It it bothers you that you got the pre-release camera without the pre-release software to actually test it properly. You are correct, yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I do have a couple other things. Just I did listen to your conversation with uh, Steve Brazel uh, that just went up yesterday. Um, and there were a couple things I thought I'd uh, add to the conversation. Um one thing that really surprised me is this is shooting the uh, the HAIF, H-E-I-F, format. Um, mm-hmm. And looking at that, you know, I've been dumping files from iPhones for quite a while. They're great files, very flexible. Um, what I was unaware of until I got this camera is you can put them in a whole bunch of different wrappers, just like a video file, which will make them unable to be used in editing software. Now, that's, you know, like you said, that's something that's going to come eventually. I thought this was going to be a standardized format, like a JPEG was my initial thinking when I kept hearing about this exciting new HEIF format. So this shoots a .HIF, which, yeah, is not openable in anything. And it's frustrating. I was really hoping we'd have a more flexible standard thing that I could just drop in an email and send to a client. But nope, it looks like they're going to need the appropriate software to open it. 
To be fair, in the early days, JPEG could also be written as JPEG uh, as right. the uh, file suffix. But and it's still acceptable today. I don't know if back in the day when people were battling between JPG and JPEG, if there was any fundamental difference uh, between the two of them, and that has been consolidated since. Right. It sounds like this format might be facing that same growing pain. Right. Uh, the other thing, too, I think is worth pointing out that I'm not hearing about a lot um, from other people who've checked out the camera is we had a substantially higher hit rate in live view with this camera than through the optical viewfinder, um, which means Ooh. Canon has – and I can see it just looking at it on screen. They have dramatically improved the speed of their live view dual pixel autofocus uh, with this camera. Um and because before it was very accurate, but it was quite slow. We made a video saying it's pretty ponderous. Even Panasonic's um, DFD system was giving us a similar hit rate. Uh, but with this, yeah, shooting sledding, shooting speed skaters, we were getting a higher hit rate. Now, this is still a pre-production camera, but that just says to me again that the inevitable sports RF camera that's coming, which will only work with dual pixel autofocus, might be the one to grab if you don't require a dslr body right now and we know it's going to show up eventually oh it's it's almost guaranteed there's probably going to be a, a buffer they don't want to release it at the same time because yeah. then why would anybody buy what they've just released here in the flapping mirror variety um but at the same time if we make a comparison you, you mentioned panasonic but what would uh, your opinion be of the Lumix S1H 5.9K mm -hmm. uh, be compared to the 5.5K or was it 5.4K on the 1DX Mark III? Well, I mean, the resolution is so close on both of those. You know, it's always great to have a little bit more than what you're delivering at. So this is great. Perfect amount for me to deliver at 4K. I mean, the difference is that we've got uh, right now just a 10-bit 420 uh, internal compression on the S1H, which is lovely, but it's not the most flexible. You know, you can't push that too hard. Where these raw files, again, I haven't been able to open them, but I've pushed plenty of C200 files before. And they're extremely flexible. And one of the big things is you can expose video raw files like you can expose photographic raw files. So protect your highlights, push everything up afterwards. It's great. Uh, you know, it's not a matter of getting more detail or a better picture. It's just a lot more flexibility in post. So I think the sweets, I mean, my dream is internal compressed raw, uh, which red seems to have the patent on, uh, black magic's kind of found a workaround, but personally I would rather be, a, and I mentioned in our video, I'd rather just be able to throw a Ninja five on top of this and get compressed raw, um, you know, much smaller with, files with and similar flexibility. HDMI port on the side, right? Oh, it's going to break and it's going to piss <laughs> me off while I'm on. But that's still preferable to me to having just over five minutes of record time to 128 gig card. Looking at the side of the camera, is there enough space that they could have put a full size HDMI port in there? Like, is is there enough real estate in that area to say it could have been bigger? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I have no follow up. So, yes, there is enough room there. Okay, uh, that that makes me weep a little bit. Uh, but hey, we're getting the insight straight from the horse's mouth here that uh, this is this is no doubt a sports action shooting camera, and the video features I think are tacked on for completeness. Yep. So, like, they're not going to have another competing camera in this format that uh, that adding the video features is going to steal anything from nobody that's buying this camera is also going to be lusting after a C500 or something right. uh, for the same purposes that they're buying it for. 
And so would it steal any sales from those high-end cinema cameras? No, they've got all sorts of ports and switches and knobs and gadgets that they love, uh, including full-size HDMI. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Maybe that was the concession right there. Maybe that was their point of saying, we're going to cripple this with the HDMI port alone and leave it at that. But um it's, it'll be interesting to see once those RAW files are actually processable and to see how that compares to Apple ProRes RAW that can be recorded externally on a, a Ninja, on the Nikon cameras, on the soon-to-be, on the, uh, the, the Lumix S1H, uh, and maybe the S1 II. I'm not sure how far that goes. But uh, this is an evolving thing with hardware that is either out or just about to be in our hands mm-hmm. that I think brings us to a space that we did not have at this price point, you would have to tack on a zero before you were having this conversation at all before. Yeah. And I do think once people get used to working with raw video, it is amazing. You know, the flexibility is wonderful. And I think there's going to be a lot of people who are very committed to it once they try it for the first time. I just think this does really remind me of the one DC with those, I think it was 600 megabit per second, 4k files, the motion JPEG ones coming off of it. This feels very similar to me. All right. Well, I, I should ask too, because uh, you know you've been doing a lot of uh, log shooting and having to color grade things afterwards. I noticed that you've been getting better at that in some of your later videos than the first times you started playing with that. I appreciate is that. that. <laughs> is that because your skill has improved, or is it because the hardware has improved, or a combination of both? It's definitely a combination of both. And the log files, when we first started playing with them in the old Panasonic GH4 days and things like that, had very minimal dynamic range. There was no real advantage to it. uh, And your skin tones turned out awful. It was something we'd avoid. And I still say, you know, with Sony's S log, a lot of people should still just avoid that whenever possible. Uh, So the formats are getting better. But at the same token, yeah, I'm getting every log file is different, but every manufacturer tends to have. a similar philosophy with how they design them. Canon is, I would say, the easiest log footage to grade. Um, you know, drop an S curve on it, add some saturation. What I did discover is uh, this pushes the magenta and blue, not cyan, quite a bit harder than other Canon cameras. Interesting. Uh, and you can see that in our video. I was kind of focused on nailing the skin tones. We're in a mm-hmm. rush. I dropped it online and then I watched it the next morning. You know, that's one of those one o'clock <laughs> uploads and like, oh man, that sky is neon. So something to be aware of. Uh, and again, that just comes from working with these files more and more. Well, and it's it's more uh, relevant here than it would be dealing with raw files because uh, in still format, Adobe does a lot of magic if you're using Lightroom behind the scenes to try and make everything feel roughly the same. Right. Uh, whereas if you were to take that same file and load it up into... If it was a Canon camera, like we're talking about the Canon Digital Photo Professional software, mm-hmm. its default settings are going to be vastly different than what Adobe has decided on being a standardized look and feel. Yep. You can go and choose the picture style and figure out what you want based on uh, what Canon's opinions are, um, but you don't have the same luxury when you're doing the grading in video. It's yep. always going to be unique to each camera, right? Yeah, it's uh, al- always a struggle, but it's always fun to play with too. All right, well, let's go on to our next story, which... I don't want to say is a struggle, but it is the final nails in the coffin of that same flapping mirror camera. Uh, Nikon has unveiled the D seventy eight or seven eighty, the replacement of the seven fifty, and it's basically a Z six repackaged with an optical viewfinder and a mirror. If you look at the specs, it's 
unbelievably similar. I, I mean, I could probably pick out a few things that are different, but that's not the point of this discussion. Right. Um, so I'm, I'm going to let you take over from here to give me your initial thoughts on what the purpose of this is and who's going to buy it. Uh, well, my wife's playing with it right now. Uh, my lovely wife, Evelyn, from the Camera Store TV. So I will get some feedback tonight. Um, but it makes a lot of sense. There's not a lot of R&D required. Uh, there's not a lot of R&D required to just um, add the sensor with phase detect that they've got in the Z6. And they've done some smart stuff. It's got the autofocus algorithms from the D5 in it. They've upped it to an eight thousandth of a second. It's it's an improvement as an SLR. But where it's really going to sing is just like the 1DX3 when you slip it into live view and wave it around in front of your face like it's a smartphone, then you're going to get things like eye detect from it. That's the only way to record the video, which it's very capable at. Um, but yeah, I do think this is really something that will wean people off. They'll grab people will upgrade from a D750, one of the best, most well-rounded DSLRs ever made, I would say. Grab this one, you know, they'll appreciate a few small adjustments to it until they kick it into live view fall in love with that experience. And now you've got a potential customer for a Z nine or Z 11 or whatever it is in a few more years. It's a uh, gateway camera. It really is. It's to get people hooked on that shooting experience. Um, Nikon's interesting because they're, we've complained about it with their Z six and Z seven. Their live view interface is so different from the one through the optical viewfinder. And I was hoping that they would kind of combine, merge those, make that difference a little less jarring, but it looks like they haven't done that. So it's still, you're relearning your cameras, controls and everything as you jump from the optical to the live view, which is again, going to make it feel like a completely different experience for people jumping between the two. Some of uh, some of my pet peeves with Nikon. I mean, they make great cameras. Don't get me wrong. Pretty well, every manu manufacturer does make great cameras these days. Um, but they don't have as much consistency between models in terms of some of the like uh, menu settings, what things are called, where they're found, how button combinations, especially undocumented ones, will change from camera body to camera body. When I'm when I'm in front of a, a group of students doing a workshop and somebody's got a Nikon camera, it used to be that you would, in order to see what settings a photo was taken at, you would press the up arrow on the D-pad. And then that changed. And I think it might have changed back, but only on some models. And now it's completely inconsistent. Um, or to turn off what Canon has in their menus called uh, uh, exposure simulation, there's a menu button to turn that off. There's no menu button anywhere on Nikon cameras to do that. In order to disable that feature, you just press the set button or the, whatever the OK in the center yep. of the, the uh, jog wheel on the back is. And we had to, I was sitting down with a student reading the PDF manual to figure out that's how you do it. It should not be that complicated yeah I, I was there last time you were in calgary doing a workshop and i was doing the same thing running around cameras six years ago i had not looked at it's one of the things reviewing cameras and uh yeah i completely could not find a pile of those settings on there and remember two basics like autofocus on the 780 if you're looking through the viewfinder you're just going to hit the af on button and it'll start 3D tracking your subject as long as they stay within the viewfinder. Take your eye away from the viewfinder, switch into live view. Now you've got to move the focus point on top of your subject. Hit the OK button in the middle of the jog to initialize or to initiate autofocusing. And for so many people, it's going to be like once you've learned how to do something one way, you're not going to stop and think you need to relearn it just using another type of display. Well, and I think that a lot of people realize that when you buy into a camera system, 
like a brand, you buy into the language of that brand, right? Yeah. And there's going to be somewhat uh, of a consistent message between, like if you up- upgrade your camera, it's going to be the same language. If you go to a different brand, they inherently, due to patents and trademarks, et cetera, have to call similar features by different words and you have to relearn that syntax and relearn where they, you know, putting a lens on clockwise or counterclockwise, et cetera. Uh, and that's fine. You know you're expecting that when you're going to a different brand, and that's a learning curve. You shouldn't expect that within the same brand yeah. space. Yeah, it drives me crazy. Uh, but yeah, I am still looking forward to testing this because the 750 was just a great bread and butter DSLR, and I expect the same here, but it's more expensive than a Z6. And for most people, I would recommend just grab a Z6 and a lens yeah, adapter I mean- if you got Nikon's class. <laughs> If you look at the the cost of the camera, it's uh, $22.99 US for just the camera, or if you want it with the 24 to 120 millimeter uh, kit lens, you're looking at a dollar less than $2,800 US, which by and large, they're not bad deals, Uh, but you can get a better deal. And so why wouldn't you at that point? Yeah. Yeah. We'll see how well the market embraces it. I think we might be surprised. I think a lot of people are still comfortable with the SLRs. I think we'll be a little surprised by the 1DX3 and 780 sales, but I think this will be the last time. I I think uh, you're right on one of those two points. I'll agree (laughs) wholeheartedly about the 1DX Mark III that the professionals that are in that space need that camera. They are so reluctant to change and the sales will be great for it. For the D780, I'm a bit on the fence. I do agree with you that the sales will be good, but I've been talking to a lot of people Uh, that have said, okay, I'm ready to embrace mirrorless, but I'm not going to give up my current camera because it's still great. I still love it. When it's time to retire it, then I will look at the mirrorless offerings. And those people are going to hang over this gap of the D780. uh, And they'll jump onto whatever comes after the Z6 um, and uh, and carry that forward again. Now I'm mixing up my Zs and Zs here. So forgive me, Canadians. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But uh, you know, this is this is an interesting space to be. Uh, one interesting, and I don't know if this is true of the uh, the, the the Z6, but uh, on this camera, um, they have a maximum shutter speed that you can set to nine hundred seconds. I love that. Because why were we locked into thirty seconds for the long? Why were we locked it's, into sixty seconds? Why after were we that ever locked into any? I mean, it makes sense in the old days because the dial they could only add so many digits to it. The second right. they brought out digital cameras, it should have just been punch in how long you want the exposure to be. That we had I, to I understand buy. There might be a, a limit. Bulb. Yeah, <laughs> uh, there might be a limit of ninety nine or nine ninety nine or something like that, just because you didn't have a readout on the older LCD screens to display the number properly. Right. I totally get that. But as soon as we were all, uh, you know, customizable with the LCD, and then why would you limit it at nine hundred? Why not nine ninety nine? By that same logic, still, I going. appreciate that it's better. Um, now, long exposure noise and everything else—that's also a factor. You've got to take that into concern because. If you have long exposure noise on a camera at a 30 second exposure, it's going to take a 30 second dark frame to cancel that out. Yeah. So if you take a 900 second exposure with long exposure noise on, it'll do that exact same 900 seconds where you just can't use the camera because it's got to finish the shot with 1800 seconds worth of time. Um but I, I like that. I, I want to point that out as a point of success for this. Don't yeah. limit me on things that are useless for you to say, hey, I'm going to put an arbitrary limit here uh, like Adobe does with the white balance slider in Lightroom and Camera Raw when I'm shooting an infrared image. I can't bring it down past, I think, 2000. Yeah. 
but for shooting infrared images, I need to. And in order to do that, I have to create a custom DNG camera profile, which requires me to take one of my raw files, convert it to a DNG file, load it through their DNG profile editor, which has been in beta for six years and hasn't been updated since, to create that DNG profile, then load that into the right folder in my computer so that I can move that slider farther. Why? Why, guys? This has just turned into complaining about Adobe, I think, is <laughs> yeah, the, I think the running so. theme for this show. Oh, well, I, I love to complain. What can I say? But I, I love to complain about everybody equally. Um, so let's move on and complain about Canon, shall we? Perfect. Uh, so reported on canonrumors.com because none of the big news uh, uh, websites decided to cover this press release from Canon at CES, and I wonder why. Uh, it's uh, on DP Review now. They're just a little later to the party. Okay. Well, uh, still, it's going to get no attention. Yeah. Um, or it's going to get no positive attention, let's say. Uh, Canon announces photographer matching service and photo culling plugin for Adobe Lightroom Classic. Okay. So... Jordan, did you watch the promo videos that they produced for these? I didn't watch the promo videos. I read the uh, article. Tell me about the promo videos. Oh, they are like epic movie trailer scenarios. Of course, it's Um, canon. And they have like in in the photo culling, it's like a a guy coming back from his shoot and he's so happy and he wants to get the photos to his client so fast. And then he's trying to like approve and reject different images at about the same speed you would do in Lightroom Classic as it is. Uh, with, I mean, a lot of people for culling photographs, when you're trying to, uh, cancel out the ones that, you know, won't be shown to the clients and, uh, just kind of quickly associate a, um, a positive structure to your best images and have those clumped together. Uh, photo mechanic has been an industry standard because they have prioritized efficiency of loading one image to the next, to the next, to the next. And if you're shooting raw files, that often means they're not going to show you the raw data. They're going to show you the embedded JPEG. Uh, and that's fast. And that's sort of what its purpose is all about. And maybe Canon is going to be doing something similar. Different manufacturers have different sizes of embedded JPEG. So there's only so far that that can go. Um, but it seems like they're trying to build a service into a product that should be able to do it itself. And it doesn't. And so people have gone to another third-party service if they needed it, and they're completely happy. And they're trying to pull people back to the software that they realize shouldn't be able to do that or is incapable of doing that to begin with. It just, it seems like there's no home for this. Yeah, well, and I mean, the only thing I did appreciate is that it still uses Adobe's own flagging tools with it, which is great. So you bring it in, and that's recognized pretty much universally. I have a theory Um, because I have a camera beside me, uh, I'm waving it around again, uh, the 1DX3 that uses machine learning for its optical viewfinder autofocus and its live view. And what's a great way to very quickly analyze small versions of millions and millions of photos to get a little more information. This makes, now I'm not, you know, a conspiracy guy or anything like that, but this (laughs) makes a lot of sense to me. Why would Canon suddenly want to quickly skim through a bunch of pictures that didn't work and separate it from the ones that did work and build an algorithm for it would be for their cameras. Uh, so I could see that and it could be useful. I mean, just knowing. I think that that makes a lot of sense, actually, based on some of the pet projects that they've had in the past, which have all failed, by the way. Yes. None of them have been successful because they're trying to take a global social audience and bake it into a singular brand. Yeah. And that's that has not been effective for anybody. You have to be a third party that is not a camera manufacturer uh, 
maybe the exception would be DJI ha- has that social network for drone footage and and uh, and photos, and they kind of hid the fact for a very long time that they were even behind it because they knew that would be a hindrance rather than uh, the, the, than a help to get global adoption across all brands to use the platform. Well, and they're also the only really relevant drone manufacturer as well at this point. So this you know, it doesn't matter if they're behind it or not. Where Canon still has a lot of competition. Okay, so um, no, no Nikon shooter is going to go and use this photo calling plugin from Canon, uh, at least unless you put a gun to their head, maybe they will. Maybe they're not even able to. Who knows if this is just for Canon RAW files and JPEGs. And ref- I don't think Canon's going to do that. They would get shut down immediately. But I wouldn't be surprised if that came across in a board meeting at some point. It's Yeah, we'll just plug it in. You'll be like, it's odd. All the files from my other cameras have like a 30% higher rejection rate in this auto culling <laughs> software. I wonder why that is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then it's along the same lines of being a, uh, a uniquely defined brand uh, amongst other com- uh, competitors, trying to put out a service to a global audience for which those competitors are a part of. And that's the second part of this mm-hmm. with their photographer matching service. <sighs> and I, <laughs> I, I don't even I don't even really know where to start with this. I think I should start with the DP review article that I pulled up published in the second half of December, stating that Kodak will shut down its Kodak it on demand photography service in January. Uh, and so that I'll just read quickly here on December 12th, Eastman Kodak announced that it is ending Kodak it its service for connecting photographers with new gigs. Jordan, did you even know this service existed before the, the shutdown announcement came across? No, the shutdown was the first awareness I had of it because <laughs> it's a horrible idea. It's a horrible idea. I mean, what are they thinking? Again, that, that classic executive boardroom, we're going to come up with a piece of software where you've got a boss in a busy company and they need a product shot for something and they're speaking down to a minion. And the minion is asking, well, how are we, how are we going to get these images? And the executive says, ah, just Kodak it. And thinking that would catch on as a slogan or a mentality is what they were banking their money on, in my mind, anyhow. And that's a fallacy. Yeah. Well, and just the criteria that it was using to help you select a photographer was location and price. That's it. (laughs) Yeah. And I don't think the Canon one is going to be much better. They do state like event or project in the video that you're watching. uh, If you uh, take a look at that at some point, they're only like one minute videos, Um, but it's still really just fluffy, ephemeral, oh, I need a photographer. I'm just going to go here and I'm going to find the perfect person. And they're going to be immediately responding on the other end on their computer to say, aha, this is great. You're going to be typing in real time, no matter what, you're going to get the perfect person. Um, And that maybe it's been a a point of uh, difficulty in the industry to find a good photographer for your gig at a price that you're willing to pay. But I don't think that it has been because if you're a good photographer, you're good at marketing yourself. You're right. you're easy to be found if you're good at what you do. And if you're not easy to be found and your price is very, very low, maybe this makes you easier to find, but I don't necessarily think that the customer at the end is going to be as happy with that as if they had paid more and fa- found more value from somebody that has uh, you know, showed themselves worthy on their own without a third-party platform to boost them up and expand their availability. 
Yeah. Well, and as well, if it's actually a successful interaction that happens, then why would you go back through Canon's software, which is probably taking a cut of the hiring anyways, uh, because now you have a photographer you know you can work with. So they get one kick at it. Their company is banking on you not liking the photographer you hire. So you find a different one through that service every time. It seems, I I just like, I hate this, um, you know, who can throw in the lowest bid possible to get these low end, you know, commercial gigs. And that seems exactly like what this is going to breed. Yeah. I could see a similar idea where it was curated between higher end photographers and higher end clients. That would be a wonderful service to have where it's like, okay, here's a major company. Here's a pool of 500 well-known established photographers in your area. Uh, That would make a lot of sense to me, but something that's just, yeah. General I, use. I don't know. You look at some of the stock photo agencies and they, of course, vet people, like even the micro stock people, you have to go through a vetting process. Yeah. I remember doing that when I was uh, uh, putting putting out my, uh, uh, my, my name and trying to gather some income as a um, uh, beginning photographer and quickly stopped because I was getting licenses for like a dollar and two dollars here right. and there that ended up on magazine covers. Um, so, uh, but but at that point, you look back to failed businesses like Image Brief, mm-hmm. where you would have a, a client, and this is kind of similar, um, that would ask for a specific image, name their price, and then a bunch of people would submit images to that. And I think that it was misused and mismanaged. I, I, I've got the suspicion that uh, for that service, a lot of people would put out a really high price tag to get a lot of people to make work on spec. Right. But then they would use as their creative direction to find, hey, we really like that image. Hey, Joe, you've got a camera. Go make me something similar to that. I'll pay you, you know, a hundred bucks. Right. Um, because now they have a, they, all of their creative direction is decided for them. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was designing the logo for Photo Geek Weekly, I went to, uh, was it 99designs.com? And I paid $1,000. Uh, I paid that up front. They held it in escrow. And I had to commit to choose one of the designs that was submitted. Right. And, and that was a better way to do it uh, in the sense of, yes, you know, you're not going to uh, make people work for nothing. Everybody, uh, or not everybody, one person at least, is going to get something out of this. Um, and I think Canon has to overcome a lot of the the human dynamics of a platform such as this. And they never work in your favor. Yeah. And their track record's abysmal. So I think we can <laughs> safely write it off. I Well, Yeah. Yeah, we can safely write this off, especially after you've watched the videos. Oh, I'm <laughs> looking. That's the first do. thing I'm doing after this. All right. Um, okay. So that was that was about it for the stories uh, this week. I think we've had some some fun discussions, Jordan. But um, wh- what have you got coming up? To I mean, I, I know you're doing a lot of stuff. Some of it you might not be able to talk about. I know there's rumblings of the uh, Olympus EM1 Mark III, which you cannot say whether or not you've ever seen or had your hands on, even if you have or haven't. Um, but there's so many really innovative cameras coming out from manufacturers across the board this year. Not only that, lenses and other accessories and stuff. Is there anything that you can talk about that you're excited about? I mean, some of the CES stuff, for sure. Uh, Like the 780, I am looking forward to getting my hands on. I was expecting a quiet start to the year, but I don't know if you saw the rumor sites today. Everything just exploded. exploded. Fuji, Olympus, everything. Uh, So yeah, it looks like it is going to be a really exciting time. And that's great because last year there were so many major announcements and launches and new lines and things like that, um, that I thought maybe that would slow down for a while, but it does not seem at all like that's happening. Uh, So 
that's coming up. The thing I'm excited for is I'm just about to head out and shoot our Pentax week. We've decided we're set the most undersung, under talked about brand out there. We got a lot of flack for not talking about them enough. So our rebuttal is we're going out to BC for a week and we're going to do Pentax week. So you can look forward to that. Look at their market share. Yes. And your coverage is proportional to that. Oh, it's much more than proportional. I just said their name right now, which <laughs> out of my year <laughs> is excessive. Uh, okay. Well, that'll be fun to see. And interesting to see how they compare. I mean, I know that they don't have the market share, but they do have products on the market. And as somebody that likes to see the entire industry and who is being innovative, some of those features might go underreported on simply because they're from Pentax. Yep. Or Pentax might have nothing to show. I'm eager to see what you can come up with. We'll see where we wind up at the end of the week. We'll see. And you know, you mentioned uh, your uh, uh, lovely wife, uh, Evelyn at the camera store. Uh, when I was in Calgary, we did two videos. Uh, I did one with Evelyn on water droplet refraction photography, and I did one with you and Chris on ultraviolet fluorescent stuff. Who's winning? Oh, good question. Uh, off the t- uh, Oh, I'll tell you. I have Evelyn. Oh, really? Uh, oh, Evelyn is kicking our butts. <laughs> um, they, uh, I checked the video. It had a recent surge and I was getting emails and lots of comments and I have no idea why there's been 66,000 views oh, wow. on, uh, on that video since we recorded it. And our, I think eloquently, beautifully produced ultraviolet video that yeah. judging by the likes and dislikes, everybody enjoys. Nobody is watching. I don't like to say dead in the water, but <laughs> there are a few signs of life for that video. <laughs> And it's unfortunate because it was Go watch such it. good content. Go watch it. I'm going to put the link to that in the show notes again. There is your encouragement to get those numbers up a little bit higher. <laughs> Leave some positive feedback. Maybe some YouTube algorithm will look at the comments and say, show this to more people. I have no idea. I th- I it was think, still fun to shoot. Yeah, I had a great time. It's interesting stuff. But I really think it comes down to the opening shot of Evelyn's video where you're filmed starting a conversation through the water droplet. I had yeah. nothing like that in my back pocket for video. No, and we kind of discovered that just at the very end once we had finished shooting everything. That was the very last thing that we shot. Yeah, it was fun. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'll put both of those links in the, uh, in the show notes and feedback from people. That would be great to say, you know, what, uh, which one do you like better? They're both different. We both have a different take on things. And we did actually, the reason why we didn't do anything water droplet related, because when I was there last year, uh, we did something out in the field with water droplets and that was one of your biggest hits in videos. That's our biggest educational video we've ever put out. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it was interesting to see the discrepancy there. Well, uh, maybe I can get you up my way to shoot some freezing soap bubbles or some snowflakes or something, because that's a universally appreciated subject. Let's we'll do see it. how that all, uh, let's make that happen somehow, some way. Uh, all right, let's get into our picks of the week. Uh, I'm going to start with you, Jordan. Uh, what are floppy cutters? Okay. So there's a little backstory for this. Uh, <laughs> I was on a uh, press event a little while ago and they had a very nice lighting set up uh, with a model there. So I just walked over and said, like, does anyone mind if I steal this floppy? And this isn't... Ent- you have to define what, what okay. is a floppy. I'm, I'm, but so a floppy, <laughs> uh, it's made by Matthews, where the guys who kind of originated it. It is just a big black net where you can... Uh, it's Velcro on one side. You can flop it down so it's as tall as a person. Mounts beautifully on a C-stand so it stays perfectly balanced. Um, and it's a way for you to cut down light. Uh, so I said, uh, can I borrow this floppy? And, and the entire like rooms full of photographers and 
cinematographers and no one knew what a floppy was. So now I'm on a mission to change that starting with this show here. <laughs> uh, so they're an incredibly useful tool. Uh, if you've checked on our old channel, we did probably my favorite camera store TV episode is when we recreated a scene from collateral uh, with Nick Thomas, who's an amazing cinematographer. And when we showed up, he pulled out two lights and then moved, I think it was a dozen of these flops around. Uh, and it's it's a technique called negative fill, where you just have a lot of light and then you move black uh, to absorb the light around to create shadow wherever you want it. I, I do this on a macro scale all the time with yeah. a little piece of cardboard and a Absolutely. third hand tool. And it's a little flag that just hides light, creates a shadow over something. This is on a much bigger scale, of course. Yeah. And I've been on so many sets or like, especially bigger environmental portraits where people, you see it all the time where they're using like eight strobes or something like that. Cause they're trying to throw the shadows where they want it. Uh, where so often, yeah, just having a couple nice pieces of black felt like this are a much more effective way. And I think it's a much more natural look too. You don't have to worry about varying color temperatures, matching all your different lights. Uh, yeah, it's an underused technique. And uh, yeah, if you ever, uh, you know, they're fair. I think they're a couple hundred dollars last time I checked on that. So not cheap uh, for sure. Uh, for a 24 by 72. I mean, you can yeah. get a 48 by 48 at the same price too, based yeah. on what your needs are. Yeah, exactly. And if you've already got a C-stand, it's a brilliant, simple design. But I would really recommend anyone just jump out and rent one from your local rental shop because they go for like $3 usually for a weekend uh, and play around with it. My lighting has improved exponentially since I picked up this technique. Uh, I've got a film right now, which uh, just got into slam dance. We're thrilled about that. Uh, it's just touring through uh, going to France here right away as well, uh, touring around with Telefilm Canada. So it's called A Walk Down to Water. And that was primarily lit with those floppies. We just had a grip truck come in, big lights, and then we just cancel everything out with a half dozen of those flops all over set. So give it a watch and tell me what you think. But uh, Is there any way that we can watch that without going to a film festival? Not yet. It's still under lock and key until it's done. It's film festival circuit. So All right. I'm uh, looking forward to getting my eyes on that. But I think it will be coming out your way, Don. So, uh, Perfect. Hopefully I, we'll I will see take there. a look. Yeah. Uh, so there you go, floppies or floppy cutters specifically on this product listing. And, you know, it's it's interesting. Everybody's talking about, oh, lights and and reflectors and, and bouncing it around. And you can have equal, probably even more prominent impact on the image by canceling it out where yes. it shouldn't be rather than adding it where it isn't. Um, and that's a part of the equation that I, I don't think is discussed enough. I mean, I'm writing my book on macro photography. I do mention this at some point. You know, you want to shape light, sometimes more in the background than the foreground, sometimes vice versa. You can control all of that. Um, but you often have to be negating the position of the light, canceling it out of certain areas rather than um, than adding it into every space you can. And that transcends every genre of photographer, uh, photography, I believe. Uh, maybe not landscape work, but hey, you can always still control what's happening in your foreground. Yeah. Um, were you going to say something? No, I was going to say that that was uh, eloquently, you got to the point much faster than I did before. So well done. <laughs> oh, well, wonderful. <laughs> Your turn. Okay, so my uh, my pick of the week is something that I have not seen yet, but I will be seeing very soon. Um, it is a Kickstarter campaign that will be launching uh, within the next few days. It'll be launching on January 15th. And I'm thinking I might put this episode out on January 14th, just prior. So uh, keep uh, keep your eyes on the show notes. Uh, take a look. Even uh, uh, subscribe for the note that it actually goes live. This is the Platyball Elite and Ergo from uh, Platypod. And uh, I 
I love them for macro work. There's these, uh, I mean, they're basically like a sheet of metal that has the most, uh, you know, perfectly positioned uh, screw holes for tripods and accessories and stuff in that uh, and to lift them up on different angles. If you need to get really low to the ground, most tripods can't do that, at least not conveniently and easy. If you're forbidden from using a tripod in certain locations, this does not qualify by most definitions as a tripod. Uh, and so it's a really fun little accessory and it's flat, easy to fit in your camera bag. They've been innovating uh, a little bit lately. I've been uh, very happy with their gooseneck arms that screw in and let me attach like macro lights and stuff to them. And with a really heavy base, they're incredibly positionable. They're working on uh, the Platyball next level tripod head. So this looks like a ball head with two different versions. And all I have is a teaser image. I mean, I'm going to be driving down to Florida to be on Scott <laughs> Kelby's The Grid on uh, January 15th to record a video uh, with, uh, Larry T and, uh, uh, and Scott Kelby. And, you know, we're, I, I'm there because I use their stuff and I can, you know, kind of promote my stuff too, but I haven't actually seen this new product and I've got a feeling that that's exactly when it's going to be announced. So, uh, keep an eye on that. And, uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have a lot of fun on the grid. Uh, it's going to be a long drive to get there though. <laughs> yeah. I'm looking at that image there and I sort of have an idea. I don't know. I'll see what it is. It's it's a confusing object. <laughs> it is a confusing object that has my admiration, and I really need to see how this actually functions. Uh, it's been hyped uh, with very little description of exactly how it's going to function, but I'm making it my pick of the week because I've I, I'm kind of happy with the brand. Yep. And they haven't let me down before, and it just is so inquisitively curious. Just looking at this. It's got to be cool. Yeah. So check it out uh, as best you can now, and especially after the 15th when uh, that Kickstarter campaign launches. I will check it out. All right, Jordan, uh, where can people find you uh, in uh, you know DP Review, of course, but online, just your personal accounts where they can follow your musings yeah, you can and the stuff that you get in the mail? Uh, yes, <laughs> you can find me on uh, Twitter at, and Instagram. I'm at that Jordan Drake. Uh, so check that out. You can find out about all my mango cutting required or uh, issues which don has thankfully solved there's there's a full story on there as well i do want to say um you can't see the video feed right now but don has a lovely calendar behind him of the uh 12 faces of crying jordan and the full-size files are on dpreview.com so you could make your own just like don and look at crying jordan for an entire year and i recommend oh, i gotta put the links to that that's my pick notes, of the and- week <laughs> and uh the i mean i i'm sure you didn't mind me doing this and you don't mind anybody else doing that's this what either. they're up there for uh and it i think it cost me 14 dollars for the calendar so it is a well worthwhile endeavor uh maybe i'll even put a link to my completed calendar if i can find a way to do that you just have to click a link and get the same wondrous thing that i have right here you heard it here guys check out the show notes and <laughs> all right just bask in uh, my glory for 2020 Jordan, thank you so much for being on the show again. Got to have you back on again soon, especially when we have any video news on because you hit it out of the park with that. I appreciate your commentary and I appreciate everybody listening. Thank you so much for everybody's time. Now it's time to get out and shoot. You know, let me rephrase. Uh <laughs>